0: with a sound like that, you can tell that's true, genuine praise. And for some of us who can make a beautiful sound like that, it still can be true, genuine praise. Ain't that right, Reverend Kristen? Yes, yes. (laughs) I say it to myself in the mirror every morning, don't worry, don't worry. (laughs) True praise, that's a song quite fitting for today. Because true praise is not just a, uh, it's not just something we just throw out loud. True praise is about feeling it in your heart and then offering it forward, however that might come about. Whether you have 90 degree weather or 60 degree weather, you can still offer true praise. It's not just saying you ascribe to a certain faith either. True praise is about practicing your faith. Today we begin a new series based on a book edited by Dorothy Seabass, called Practicing Our Faith. (laughs) You would never know, but we have many jokes up here while you all are are out there. Um, Practicing Our Faith, a way of life for searching people. And so whether you call it true praise, whether it's practicing your faith, they refer to a life where you embody. What it is you say you believe in. So you say you believe in a good God, do you? So what good is happening in your life these days? Do you say you believe in peace? How are you embodying peace in your life? You say you believe in prosperity, do you? Tell me, how is your abundance contributing to a healthy and a prosperous economy? Not only here in our local community but in society at large. People of God, are you practicing your faith? In our gospel this morning, we encounter a certain kind of faith, a certain grace, if you will. Yes, yes, yes. Before we get to those faces, we must pray. Help me, Jesus. (laughs) Loving God, we give thanks this day. You are beautiful, God. And whether we are silent or whether we are crying out, Like babes, you still hear our prayers. And so, God, in this hour, we ask you to open up our minds, open up our hearts to receive all that you would have us to receive, not just today, but every day, but especially in this hour. God, we affirm your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, yes, we encounter them even in this service. And it's okay. It's a beautiful thing when babes are crying even in midst of this service. Oh, but, you know, sometimes... When you're not in church, sometimes you're on the street or trying to meditate. You encounter the children, don't you? Oh, this is good. I, I, I could even plan this right here. This is good. <laughs> we hear them loudly crying and complaining. You go to the playground and you see them uh, picking their noses and putting their hands behind their ears and with unsanitary fingers wiping the tears from their eyes. In our gospel, we see poor little children sobbing uncontrollably. You would have thought there was no more candy in this world. Maybe someone told them Santa Claus has just died. But their cries are too unbearable. And where are the parents? Where are the mothers? People always say that. Come, mothers. It's in this passage. Can't you see it in Mark 10? Come, mothers. Come get your child and calm your child down, please. I can almost hear my mother yelling out. Stop crying before I give you something to cry about. Yes. Oh, but... The mothers in our gospel, I don't think they're my mother in this situation. No, the children's mothers want to know what is going on with their kids. They have the sympathy of a woman, a drag queen like Noxima Jackson, who in the movie Too Wong Fu pastorally asked Miss Chichi Rodriguez, little Latin boy in drag, say it with me, why are you crying? And without hesitation and a, with a little stutter in their speech, the children begin saying, because you, you two are just so pretty. That's why. You're just so pretty. No, that's in the movie. That's not in our gospel <laughs> this morning. But the children begin t- uh, tattling on these disciples. They run to their mother saying, Mommy, Mommy, those mean disciples, they won't let me see Jesus. The poor little children. Maybe the disciples thought the kids would cause Jesus a headache. Maybe the kids were a bunch of Dennis the Menace types, little rascals, or even Bebe's kids. (laughs) Or even worse, children of the corn. Help us, Lord, help us. (laughs) But in any case, the disciples are stern with them, not putting up with any of these problem kids. The poor little children and those poor little disciples they upset the kids they upset their parents and to make matters worse they have now upset jesus himself he sees how disciples are treating the kids and all of a sudden this holy and devout child of god becomes angry he's indignant asking them what is wrong with you peter james john As many times as they mess up in the Gospel of Mark, you would think their names were Larry, Mo, and Curly. (laughs) What's wrong with you? Have you lost your mind? Have you not learned anything from me these days? Practice your faith, please. And so he says, let the children come. Don't stop them. The community of God belongs to these children. You must receive the community of God as a little child in order to receive it. Hmm. A little child with such innocence, right? Children will believe anything, won't they? Won't we? Receive the community of God as they would, the scripture says. It is often thought that Jesus is talking about the innocence of little children, their naivete. What many of us do not realize is that life for a child in the first century was much different than our context today. In Jesus' day, children had no rights. They had the same status as slaves, which was no status. Children were the most vulnerable people in society. Whenever there was war or famine, children were the first to die. In that society, children were nobodies. The infant mortality rate was nearly 30%. And out of those who survived their first year, 30% would die before the age of six. And by their mid-teens, 60% would have died. Only, 70, only 25% reached age 25. Back then, you were blessed to see your 30s. And only a very small percentage would live beyond the age of 40. See, that's why children long to see their teenage years, not like us for prom, to play high school football, to have some status, to gain some power, to gain value in society. In my first year of high school, at 15 years old, I had uh, joined the marching band and became part of the drum line. Any drummers here this morning? Uh-oh. Yes, yes, yes. You know how we acted in the drum line. We thought we were all that. And so all of a sudden I had a new confidence and so I began to actively or some would say more passively date girls and I was a bit more aggressive than before. I walked around with my chest out and my chin up trying to assert this new power I thought I had. And of course my mother noticed the air of cockiness that walked with me and she wasn't having any of it. I tried to show her that I was grown. I wasn't her maquito lindo anymore. I was different. And so one morning, we were both in the bathroom getting ready for the day. Myself for school, and and she was getting ready for work. We had a bathroom with a two-sink vanity, and it was a huge mirror, so we were both able to do our hairs together and get ready for the day. (laughs) But that morning, she's—imagine for a second. Some of you may have noticed this also. Back when everyone had big hair, remember that? She's got one brush in one hand, and then a can of Aquanets, the purple can in the other hand. Yes, all of our ozone layer problems because of my mother. That morning, she's brushing her hair. She's got the can of Aquanet. She tells me that she needs me to come home right after school to take care of my little cousin. Now, I, of course, had plans after school. Maybe a date with someone or with my drumline buddies. I don't really know at this point. But she said she didn't care what plans I had. I needed to come home and babysit. Case closed. And so I... Glanced at her, sized her up a little bit. She's 4'10", I'm 5'8", 9", 10", depending on how big my heels are on a certain day. But I told her, I said, as soon as I turned to her, I said, Ma, I'm 15 years old now. You don't tell me what to do anymore. <laughs> well, uh, no, she didn't hit me with the brush. My mother was better than that. A minute later, I was rinsing my eyes out, all the uh, Aquanet hairspray that got in it. <laughs> later that day, as I was babysitting my cousin, <laughs> I felt sorry for myself because all of a sudden, all this power that I thought I had, I was back to being a child. When I was babysitting, I felt like I was a nobody. I was still this little childlike person. No one likes that. No one. And yet Jesus says, receive the community of God as a little child. To be compared with a child was not a compliment. It was not an honor. It was not something I or the disciples were eager to embrace. They barely had any status as it was in society, and they would never long for their childhood years when they were worth nothing at all. If the kingdom, if the community of God, If it belongs to children, then that means it belongs to a bunch of nobodies. Would you enjoy being a nobody in society? Would you enjoy having no power, no status? I mean, let's face it. You can't succeed in our society if you're a nobody. One has to stand out to be noticed. You can't get a job promotion being a nobody. It's hard to achieve the American dream being a nobody on the sidelines. Being a nobody gives you no power, something we would all be hard-pressed to be without. In our world, being successful translates to having the ability to tell people what to do instead of being told what to do in our world and in our economy. If you grab just enough power, people will be serving you all the days of your life. You may have noticed that there's a lot of talk about the economy lately. We are in a election year and all the pundits on TV say that this presidential election is going to come down to the state of the economy. That is how good or bad the management of resources have been the production and distribution of goods and services, the unemployment rates, even confidence in the marketplace. And well, with voting day less than a month away, we'll see how the voters decide. But did you know that the word economy is actually in the Scriptures? The Greek word is oikonomia. It appears in Scripture where it refers to the management or administration of the household, So you see, the kingdom of God, the community of God can sometimes be interpreted through the lens of the economy of God that is the administration of God's household. Now, be sure you get this, that the economy of God is different from our world's economy. In a divine economy, those with no status, all of the little children among us, crying or not crying, everyone has value especially those who society victimizes and deems worthless. There has been some debate recently as to whether a certain percentage of Americans see themselves as victims or not. You might have heard of it. As children of the divine, I personally pray that no one gets stuck with the label of victim. I choose not to characterize anyone in the victim category, but even I know that one not need be a victim to be victimized by people or society. One need not be a victim to be victimized by power and institutions of privilege, by institutional racism, sexism, especially homophobia. In the household of God, the victimized always have a prime seat at the table of God. Thank God the have-nots, the bankrupt, those who are in jail, the immigrants, the uninsured, the victimized, and even those with long criminal records. We all have sacred value in God's economy. We are all worth something. And if we are all worth something in God's economy, then today in our global economy, we are challenged to practice our faith. That is, we should recognize the sacred value we hold and act accordingly right here and right now. Instead of us hoarding power to ourselves, we should share it. In the first century, power was thought of as being a zero-sum game, if you will. Not everyone could enjoy the privileges of power or else there might not be any servants, any little children. Kings are only kings if they have subjects to rule over. Well, over time, we have learned that communities flourish and prosper when everyone is allowed to exercise his or her own free agency. On a global scale, we have evolved to embrace different forms of democracy and representation of the people, so we can all truly recognize the sacred value that humanity holds. In the business world, some larger companies today serve their workers well by allowing them to exercise their power through collective bargaining. In our current economic environment, some unions serve their workers and their companies well by sometimes making concessions, allowing the company to stay afloat and stay competitive. People of God, recognizing the sacred value in all humanity sometimes means that we divest from companies that rely on slave labor and poor working conditions. It also means that we contribute more to the nonprofits in our communities, churches included. People who are on the front lines of helping others and affirming the value that they hold. Now, it sometimes means not placing our hope in extravagance and expensive items and instead investing in valuable people. Now, don't get me wrong. I like nice things. You like nice things, do you not? We all like nice things. But there's something we should value more than nice things. And that's nice people, beautiful people, people who have been made in the image of God, people with sacred value, and inherent dignity on the inside of them. Now, the call to recognize and affirm one another's value doesn't mean you put everyone else's needs before yours. I will tell you that I understand that oppressors, corrupt leaders do horrible things to people because they see God in themselves only and no one else. I understand that there is much suffering caused by people who think that they are God's gift to this earth while others are scum. But it is just as bad if many of us go to the opposite extreme and recognize the divine in others without recognizing it here in our own beings. Don't value people because you think they have more of the divine in them than you do. It is hypocritical to say that you recognize the good in all people and then you look in the mirror and you hate yourself. If we are going to truly practice our faith and recognize the sacred value of all, and as Reverend Kristen likes to say, all means all, then start by affirming your own worth in God's eyes. In our economy today, you may feel like you aren't worth a dime, not even what's in your bank account. But in the economy of God, you are worth more than you could ever imagine. No matter how many times you've been victimized. No matter how many churches or religious folks have kept you away from serving your God. No matter how many family members or friends have lied to you, have cursed to you, have have told you that you're not worth the the ground that you walk on. No matter how much aqua has been sprayed in your eyes or brushes have been thrown at you over the years. No matter what you think your worth is now in God's economy, in the household of God, you are valued and you are blessed. If we are going to practice our faith today and every day, then we must recognize the sacred value of all people. Amen.